Hello, Elevated Elephant Tribe. Thanks for joining me for my new series of podcast posts that I'll be sharing with you guys every Wednesday. Unlike the interviews I've been doing since day one, these Wednesday posts will be just me getting stuck into some juicy yoga wellness type topic that you guys want to hear me unpack here on the podcast. If you are new to the podcast, welcome. And if you are a returning listener, I'm super happy that you've come back. How are you? Okay, disclaimer. These chats are obviously my opinion coming from my experiences, my understandings and my knowledge of all of which are limited. So if you disagree with my opinion, great, educate me but be kind. (laughs) Okay, with the disclaimer done and the intro done, I think it's time to get on with it. I recently posted on Facebook and Instagram um, to you guys asking you to post me or email me or message me a question that you would like me to unpack here on the Wednesday chat. And the lovely Andrea, hello Andrea, she messaged me right away. And I was very happy to see her name and that question in my inbox. So many thanks to you, Andrea. Her question was, well, it's two parts. First part was, why so many downward facing dogs in yoga? New people I teach are miffed. I love that word. Miffed means bemused, by the way, kind of like, yeah, bemused by this pose. And I find myself trying to justify it. I love this question. Um, It made me chuckle because that's the wonderful thing about beginners. They point at the pink elephant in the room and go, why is no one acknowledging this massive pink elephant in the room? (laughs) I think um, teachers and seasoned asana practitioners, we kind of just do these things without giving it much thought anymore. And so when a new pair of eyes come into the room, they ask those questions, seemingly obvious questions, but don't actually have an obvious answer. So Andrea, I'll do my best to give you my opinion and, you know, reasons why I do it and why I was taught to do it. Um, Most people I'm assuming these days find themselves in a variety of yoga classes that could be from hatha yoga it could be vinyasa to power to dynamic to restorative to yin and so these more modern styles of the asana well most of asana yoga is quite modern in comparison to the umbrella of yoga but that's a whole nother topic <laughs> um they're kind of where teachers have cherry-picked almost the bits that they enjoyed about other practices and then have creatively sequenced them in their own classes. So meaning, if you came into the yoga from a non-lineage-based practice, it might not make as much sense, the downward-facing dog stuff, than if you came in via the, say, Ashtanga Vinyasa route or the Shivananda route, um, perhaps even the Iyengar route, um, where the downward-facing dog is 
first introduced in the sequence of the sun salutations, especially in the Ashtanga Vinyasa um, tradition. And so it becomes a base position for the stepping back and stepping forward and moving in and out through our upward facing dogs and to standing and all that. It's a good warm up. So the sun salutes aren't necessarily broken down into pose by pose by pose. It's more of a sequence of asanas that are there to heat the body, to set the breath tempo, to set the drishti, the focus, to welcome in the sun, to set your intentions and all that good stuff. So if they haven't come from these um, pathways into the posture practice, um, where sun salutations aren't really taught the same, it might be why people are questioning why so many down dogs. So there's one, that kind of lineage tradition route. Um, I kind of touched upon it in that. Um, for me, I treat the downward facing dog in my vinyasa flow classes as a kind of base position. Um, I feel like because we have those four points of contact, hands and feet, we're quite agile and we can move in a lot of directions. So I could step forward, I could move to plank, I could jump forward, I could step back. Um, and so it's a really good start position for many variations of directionality, which I really enjoy. Also, it's very strengthening on the upper body and lengthening through the entire back seam of the body, almost from like the soles of the feet, through the Achilles, all the way up, 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 and to the top of the head. There's a kind of very long stretch of the back of the body. Um, also, it's a, an inversion, so we're getting the head um, lower than the heart, and so we're visiting our first inversion as well. So you don't actually have to be in a handstand or on your head. So you're in a, an inversion there and gaining all those benefits. Um what else? I would also suggest to you, Andrea, to think about how downward facing dog feels in your own body and why you practice downward facing dog. And w although we don't want to um, imprint a bias on our students, we can only, at the same token, we can only teach from our lens. As best we can, we keep it an open channel for people's own experiences. But it's a good start point for you to unpack in your own practice why you do downward facing dog and how it feels for you. And also in your self-practice, do you do as many down dogs as you teach? You might find that there might be a discrepancy there that actually unconsciously you've taken out a lot of the down dogs, but you're so used to teaching as a, a base position that it's kind of gone into a, an, a habitual patterning and um, sequencing of your class. That could be interesting as well. Another thing I'd like to note is that where you can give these um, answers to these people's questions, in it's also we don't want to um, spoon feed people. So allow them to come up with their own um, interpretations of down dog. So making sure you don't feel like you have to give all the answers. Sometimes it's good to invite people to sit with their questions until they drum up um, their own answers. I know that's like a really annoying thing that teachers do, but it is really quite useful, isn't it? <laughs> um, I'm also assuming... 
maybe wrongly, that the people in question are probably on the more stiffer spectrum. Because I can imagine if my body found that position, downward facing dog, difficult, I would be more inclined to question why I'm doing it so frequently. And I just wondered, I was just curious, are these people also relatively stiff in the shoulders and the hamstrings and the calves? Are they struggling to find that shape that we're aiming to make, aiming loosely, you know, those little bunny quotes? And so it could be a case that there, you might say that there is tightness within your body and that in time things will start to lengthen out and you might find that the pose is less frustrating. Um, and yeah, think about maybe not keeping people in, if you are dealing with a, a, a bunch of uh, <laughs> stiff people, <laughs> God love them, maybe consider not putting them in that pose as frequently and see if that helps them a little bit as well. It could be that you build to a peak pose, a down dog as a peak pose. Okay, that's the first part of the question answered. I hope I come up with stuff that was interesting for you, and maybe if you're listening out there, that was useful for you as well. So part two. Sorry, I keep turning away from the mics. That's why I go like loud and quiet. Um, How can we ensure downward-facing dog is done safely? I heard recently... Bring feet wide and don't bend knees was a new one. Um, We'll have to have to think about this one some more, she says. (laughs) You sound unconvinced, Andrea. So feet wide, bend knees. No, don't bend knees. Feet wide, don't bend knees. I'm assuming, again, this is for people perhaps who are stiffer and maybe this um, cueing is to help people find length in their spine. And I would say, yes, maybe for some people, legs wide, legs straight is the perfect um, cue they need to hear. And I would also say for some people, it will be completely irrelevant and not useful or maybe even painful. I think the more we move away from these blanket cues, the better. Um, I'm not against blanket cueing because I think that does have its place if you're teaching a big group of people um, varied levels varied abilities varied experiences blanket cues can be very useful to kind of keep that cohesive um, flow of the class but then also know that there's going to be holes and failings within that so I would recommend maybe you could try that cue and see how it lands on the folk in your room and then perhaps also offer another cue with the knee soft So I would say, yes, it works for some probably, and no, it won't work for others. That was nice and vague for you, wasn't it? (laughs) You know me though, don't you, Andrea? Um, I think that we need to mature in our teaching practice, me included, in our own understanding of our bodies, and know that things shift and change constantly. So moving away and being um, healthily um, cynical about these new fashionable queuing, you must do it this way things. I think, okay, could be useful. Take it on board, but also take it a little bit with a pinch of salt, I would say. Oh, let me know how you get on with that. Interesting. Okay, so Andrea, that's all I've got for you there. I hope that's okay. (laughs) Um, Because that 
I think I've done that in quite good time, folks. Because of that, I'm going to go on to the next question I got in. And this is from the lovely Deborah. I didn't catch your last name. I'm going to call you Debs here on the podcast. I feel like we're at that point now in our relationship. So, hey, Debs. We haven't met before. So this is really cool. (laughs) So Deb asks, um, let me find her question. Talk about yourselves. Here we go. I notice some of my students can't stay still during Shavasana. I've offered various ways to help them settle, but I still seem to bump up against resistance. Any help or advice on this would be well received. Oh, Debs, I'm sure there's a lot of people listening who teach yoga who are kind of nodding their head and probably have so much useful advice and tips um, and sort of sob stories to share with you. I've made a list. I'm nice and prepared. So these are my ideas and some of them you probably already do. But having a different take on it might be useful and might make you think or help you think about things in in a different way. Okay, so number one, make sure they feel warm and comfortable. And I think this can be really underestimated. And sometimes people are resistant to grab their socks or to put on their jumpers. So I I kind of um, maybe explain to them that the body does drop in temperature once you move into stillness relatively quickly and it might be disruptive to their shavasana, their relaxation. I mean, if you're teaching in a heated center then maybe it's not such a problem so make sure people feel like they have time to grab whatever they need to grab to be warm and also then being comfortable physically so if laying down palms up feet and legs spread is a very vulnerable position for many people and also there may be um physical tightness or lower back stuff or whatever laying on their back might be uncomfortable so you could option a few other ways to lay down even lying on the side perhaps even with a bolster between the um, knees or to cuddle could be quite nice so really make sure and highlight the importance of comfort and warmth to your students um Number three, benefits. So I'm not really a benefit-driven kind of yoga teacher, um, but there I'm, I'm very aware that some people in the room really like to hear why they're doing something. So you could explain a little bit of what Shavasana is and why it's there. You could option or um, give benefits, Um helping to de-stress, helping to change... Is it um, alpha waves in your brain? I'm sorry if I've got that wrong. (laughs) But it kind of brings you into a different state of mind, which is very useful and healing. Um, You could say it's a time for the body to absorb all the information of the practice. Find your benefits, back them up, of course, and perhaps that could give people a reason you know, why they have to or should or um, could do it. Um, Give the mind something to focus on. So perhaps if you've got quite a fidgety group, um, you've got the body comfortable and still and you've perhaps given a benefit or, or two, that rings true for you. So never say something you don't believe in. 
or haven't tried or experienced. Um, I give their monkey mind a toy to play with. So it could be as simple as watching the breath or repeating a mantra or an affirmation like I am peaceful or something like this as a way to keep the mind from making lists, from going off on tangents, even falling into sleep. So it could be useful to give the mind something to focus on. With that said, my next point is to perhaps even offer some silence. And this can be quite challenging for many people. So it's good as yoga teachers to challenge our students in various ways. So you might even um, give them a little heads up um, after you've done um, created that space. You might say something like, and now I'm going to leave you in silence for a moment or a minute. If you're timing, you could even say the time. And then let them be in with whatever they're being with in that moment of silence. So I think silence is very important in Shavasana. Um, so you could do that as well. And then I put music as it's like the complete opposite. Sometimes I use music. This is full disclosure. Sometimes I use music when I myself, I'm quite tired. Yeah. I'm not sure if that's a good thing to admit or a bad thing to admit or just an honest thing to admit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you've been teaching a lot, you've had a hectic week or whatever's going on, like yoga teachers are humans too, and we get tired. So maybe I've, I've optioned those comfort, warm benefits, a little body scan, and then I might allow the music to do the rest <laughs> and leave them with the, the music. I generally choose music without lyrics because I sometimes think lyrics can pull focus or direct an emotion so I try and keep it as atmospheric as possible without um you know the tearjerker it's not my style not that it's wrong it's just not my style so you could do that then I put um to consider the amount of time you leave people in shavasana so again it could be depending on the group um the level of the group, the energy of the group. But sometimes uh, notice if you're being really um, uh, rigid on your time, like I have to have at least five minutes, and maybe that isn't working at all. Sometimes I've really shaved off the shavasana, pulled people out earlier and we've sat instead and maybe done some breathing um, work. If I've really felt like it's just, I can feel that people are um, anxious or... They're just very fidgety, so I might pull people out earlier. So I know the longer sometimes is better, but know that there's no hard and fast rules. And I think as yoga teachers, it's good to be as responsive as we can be to what's needed. And then who knows, in time, that same group of people, if you get repeat offenders, you might notice that, you know, one minute turns into five minutes, turns into 10 minutes, and then you hear them say, I love Shavasana, which is, I just think, a massive win. <laughs> and I'm just going to say, make sure you bring people out, ground them, steady them, um, transition to seated peacefully, gently, um, just throwing that out there but really I think as teachers in Shavasana we're there to hold space um, and to facilitate um, that moment of Shavasana which is for me personally is when I really start to dive into the subconscious sometimes for me the asana is a ways to get there 
I, I don't really, you know, when you, I was talking to a friend, you know, when you hear people say like hips open, I don't know, make you cry. I don't know. <laughs> Back bends make you feel like this. I'm always a little bit like one eyebrow raised at those things. And sometimes maybe that is the reaction I have and maybe it isn't. Generally, I don't really feel much in my asana practice. <laughs> I feel things. Don't get me wrong. I feel things. For me, it's more the joy of moving and breathing in that kind of flow and synchronicity. And I'm really, for me, it's more of a, a focus practice. And it might be because I need that in my life, that focus. Maybe I really enjoy that element of really zoning in on a task. And then for me, the transition to Shavasana suddenly becomes a more emotive, more about the depths of my soul and my psyche. So I don't know, maybe that's the way you practice as well, Debs, and perhaps some of you people out there. I don't know why I tagged that one at the end, I just kind of fancied it. Um, but allow people to be fidgety, to be frustrated as well. Again, like um, with Andrea's question about um, the down dogs and the questioning, you can offer some suggestions, but really... There's a point where we have to step back and we should step back, I think. And people will have whatever reaction experience that they're going to have at that time. And I think that's important to note as well. Oh, that's the point I was going to put. I'm going to tag it on maybe for both of you, but for Andrea's question about the bent knee, no, straight legs, feet wide option. I would say I remember now um, that I think sometimes us yoga teachers... We feel as if we have the whole weight of the yoga system on our shoulders and that we should um, be something for everyone all the time. And that's just not possible and it's exhausting. <laughs> I like to th remind myself that there's a web of wonderful yoga teachers out there that are going to pick up where I left up, off. They're going to correct something that I'm mucked up they're going to be say that cue that that person needed to hear that I didn't say. So I don't feel as if I have to make get it right every single time I'm in the room with someone for like 60 minutes. It's not possible. So I think for me, rem reminding myself that there is that network of beautiful yoga teachers out there that will, like I said, pick up where I left off and help that person, that individual, those individuals, um, with their practice. I'm going to leave it there, team. I hope that was really useful. I think I was quite focused and succinct. And I'm I'm hoping my Wednesday posts will be like this. I want them to be fun, because I am a fool. <laughs> but also a little educational. I want them to push me a little bit out of my um, comfort zone. Or my new um, favourite podcast is um, Joanna DeVoe. Um, hippie witch and um, I listened to her website her website I listened to a podcast recently and she called the comfort zone the zone of lies <laughs> I really enjoyed that so it helps me step out of my zone of lies <laughs> and do something new and interesting and um, it'll help I think it'll help me grow as, as well as I hope it helps you develop and expand as well Please keep your questions coming in. You can email me 
you can Facebook message me, you can Insta message me. So if you go onto my website, which is www.rachel.yoga, it's just E-L, no A-E-L, just rachel.yoga, follow the podcast page. Um, This is episode one, so click on that and um, show notes are there. And then, yeah, get in contact and um, ask me a question that you want me to unpack here on these Hump Day Wednesday Elevated Elephant podcast posts. (laughs) Okay, until next time, happy practicing, happy teaching, lots of love. Bye.